Hi, this is Steve Nerlick from Cheap Astronomy. Why, 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 why Cheap Astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, Episode 46, Life and Death and Space. We all like to think that we are on a trajectory to become a spacefaring species, although for most of us making that happen is someone else's problem. We'll just buy the tickets when the time comes. Nonetheless, getting to space and living in space are two quite separate issues. For example, Dear Cheap Astronomy, Could you really grow plants on the Moon or on Mars? without shipping in a whole lot of nutrients. This question is really about whether you could ship in a baseload of nutrients that would be adequate to sustain a long-term ecosystem in space that effectively cycled all the key nutrients needed to keep plants alive. So the first essential factor for plant growth is liquid water. And to have liquid water you firstly need a stable temperature range where it will neither freeze nor boil away, and you also need a certain atmospheric pressure, or the water will just boil away anyway, and you'll also need a certain atmospheric humidity, or the water will slowly evaporate away. From there, you then need the other ingredients of photosynthesis, which are carbon dioxide and light. And although plants do produce oxygen as a byproduct of photosynthesis, you will need the atmosphere that the plants are growing in to already have an oxygen partial pressure that's similar to Earth. Even though the green parts of plants can produce their own oxygen under light, they still have to survive through the night, and any crop plants will need oxygen aerated soil all day long to keep their roots alive. So, before we even get to the nutrients, you can see that if we're going to grow plants in space, we'll need to grow them in a pressure-sealed, temperature-regulated and humidified enclosure. And you'll probably also need some artificial lighting. Natural light on the moon is problematic. It's great for two weeks, but then you get total darkness for two weeks, which would not be conducive to productive plant growth and it would play havoc with their diurnally regulated hormone systems that drive flowering and fruiting. The natural light on Mars would be better for diurnal regularity, but Mars only receives about 60% of the Earth's average solar flux, so that would mean low productivity anyway. But okay, let's now think about the nutrients. Plants need nitrogen to build proteins and chlorophyll, and phosphorus to build nucleic acids. Calcium, magnesium and sulfur are also needed to build various specialised molecules that are used in plant structure and metabolism. And there's also potassium and probably sodium, which aren't so involved in biochemistry, but are vital to maintaining a plant's fluid balance and various osmotic pumping mechanisms. After that, you have the micronutrients, the lack of which might not kill plants outright, but their absence will impact on productivity and growth, 
and could eventually kill them. The principal micronutrients are iron, boron, molybdenum, copper, zinc, manganese and chlorine. So, to create a sustainable ecosystem in space, suitable to grow crops, you first need to grapple with the engineering issues involved in creating an adequately pressurised, heated, humidified and lighted growing environment. With sufficient solar flux, solar panels and storage batteries, you could certainly power such a system, but it's still going to need regular maintenance and a ready supply of spare parts, which are either managed by humans or a team of clever robots, much cleverer than any we are able to build today. Look out for a movie called Silent Running if you want some examples. As for cycling nutrients... Sure, if you start with a batch of plants in fertile soil and their life cycles are short, you might be able to keep the soil replenished as those plants live, absorb nutrients from the soil and then die, but breaking down deceased plant material to return nutrients to the soil really requires fungi and bacteria and you'd probably need earthworms as well for further processing and to keep the soil well mixed and aerated. So there has to be enough constant cycling of plant material to feed and sustain populations of such partner organisms. And of course the plants will need to be pollinated to produce future generations, which means insects, if not birds and even mammals. In a nutshell, it takes an ecosystem to raise a potato or otherwise it needs the intervention of a human farmer or a clever robot to manage the entire life cycle of a plant and maintain its soil. And of course humans are also useful at producing fresh carbon dioxide, not to mention fertiliser. And thanks me. So, life in space, just like life on Earth, will involve both living and dying. And of course, before we do start living in space, we'll have to keep on living on Earth. Dear Cheap Astronomy, Is there much chance of us dying from a near-Earth asteroid impact, or Nibiru, or whatever? Well, as usual, the end is not nigh. So far, life on Earth has survived a four-billion-year journey from a warm little pond to enjoying pina coladas at a poolside bar, so it does seem unlikely the whole show is suddenly going to be snuffed out on some arbitrary date that someone has found in an old book. Of course, bad things do happen, like to the poor old dinosaurs, although the birds and indeed the mammals did quite well out of that. The mass extinctions that we know about involved multicellular organisms that left a fossil record behind, although one of the first and maybe biggest mass extinctions of all was the Great Oxygenation Event, about 2.5 billion years ago, where the development of photosynthesis suddenly added lots of molecular oxygen, O2, to the atmosphere and the oceans. Since oxygen is generally toxic to anaerobic organisms, it's assumed that many such species quickly died off, and in vast numbers, around that time. 
The earliest mass extinction we find in the fossil record was the end of the Ordovician era, 450 million years ago, which might have been due to a sudden uplift of a huge mountain range with a huge surface area of new rock that sucked a lot of CO2 out of the atmosphere and caused a snap ice age. Then there was the Endivonian event at 375 million years ago, which took out the trilobites. This might have been because of a sudden deoxygenation of the oceans due to the first land plants stirring up nutrients, which then washed into the oceans, creating huge algal blooms. The end Permian event, 225 million years ago, was probably the most devastating of the lot, resulting from massive volcanic activity around the Siberian traps, which added lots of CO2 to the atmosphere and also stimulated methanogenic bacteria to add methane to the atmosphere. And so massive global warming resulted, as well as a lot of anaerobic toxins being added to the oceans. The end Triassic extinction, 200 million years ago, cleared the stage for the dinosaurs, but its cause is much debated. Possibly an asteroid impact or a volcanic event leading to sudden climate change, but no one is really sure. And then there's the end Cretaceous event, which definitely involved an asteroid impact at Chicxulub, although parallel volcanic activity from the Deccan Traps may have already been putting pressure on ecosystems beforehand. And right now, we are arguably undergoing the Holocene, or the Anthropocene, extinction, which is happening because of humans, and so it's a bit about climate change, but it's also about destroying whole ecosystems, eating megafauna as well as just killing them so we can do bizarre things with their body parts, and of course there's all that plastic and that we dump in the oceans. So it turns out that extinction events are often caused or facilitated by life itself, rather than just by random planetary or astronomical factors. In fact, there may have been some major asteroid impacts that didn't have much effect on life at all. We think something major happened around 800,000 years ago because of the Australasian strewn field, which is literally a field of objects strewn all over Australia, Southeast Asia and parts of southern China. These objects are called tectites, which are molten rocks that have been aerodynamically shaped. Tectite mineralogy is clearly not of volcanic origin, and so is most likely melted crustal rock that's been thrown up by an impact. That melted rock is then cooled and solidified after following a parabolic trajectory through the atmosphere. The fact that lots of chemically similar tectites of the same age are found over such a huge area of Earth suggests it must have been a pretty big impact, but no major dying off of species occurred at that time. Indeed, at the time, Homo erectus was making its way through the region and sites in China have found stone tools and tectites in the same location 
seemingly deposited at the same time. So it seems there was a major impact event that may have started a few forest fires here and there, but otherwise didn't disrupt things all that much. We are yet to determine the location of the crater from where all the Australasian strewn-field debris came from, a site in Laos or another in Vietnam have been suggested. But anyway, despite all the death and mayhem of the past, our own species is doing just fine, thanks very much. We have now assessed the neighbourhood and found nothing of the mass extinction variety that's heading straight for us. Indeed, we have been scanning the skies for the last 400 years now, so the idea of a rogue planet suddenly sneaking up on us out of nowhere is kind of absurd. And despite all the death and mayhem that we are now causing, we are at least gearing up towards creating the first opportunity to get the DNA replication system off the planet. Something which has been 4 billion years in the making, but may eventually lead to life persisting long after our home planet is swallowed up by its dying sun. And thanks me. So yes, it's hard to create a self-sustaining ecosystem, but it's not so hard to manage a farm, and perhaps some robots can do that for you. But even then, without an active ecosystem to back you up, you will probably need to ship in fresh nutrients now and again. In any case, we are still a long way from realising such a dream, and what if something bad happens before we get there? So it is good to know there's no obvious dangers from space in our immediate future, and at the end of the day, it's unlikely that even the most extreme expression of our darker nature could see us wiping ourselves out completely. It is more a question of whether we can maintain the sustainable ecosystem we currently have on Earth, so we all get to eat and drink and breathe. But that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a space science question, or you just want to plant a seed, or make a huge impact, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and let us rain down molten fury upon you all. Thanks for listening. Steve Nerlich, Cheap Astronomy.